politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, Minutemen and beleaguered taxpayers who are now under siege for day 17 here on Tuesday, March 31st. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house. See our podcast here Sign up at our Facebook fan page, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary on Facebook. We also have a Twitter account uh, for Citizen Sanctuary as well. We need our sanctuary. We need our constitutional sanctuary. It's time to rise up and take our country back. We started this month as a free people. Now we are closing this month under a degree of tyranny that is unimaginable, that could have been unimaginable, was unimaginable just a few weeks ago. And it's not just any tyranny. It's the worst mix of anarchy and tyranny. Yesterday, we had a pastor in Tampa, Florida, arrested for holding services on Sunday. Now, look. Personally, I would advise against it for just a number of reasons. Image-wise, at this point, I'd rather fight this more politically at this point. But to take the step of arresting him, to make an example, the Hillsborough County uh, police or sheriff in Florida, this is out of Tampa, yet at the same time, sex offenders are being released under the guise of coronavirus in New York, violent criminals being released pretty much in every state. And in Texas and in Ohio, judges mandated the opening of Planned Parenthood. So all of us have been wondering, dude, like what happened to the courts? I mean, government, state, federal, local, they can't breathe. They can't govern common sense, basic fundamental needs for the people for national security. For, for public safety. We're all into public safety now, but, but, but nothing. I mean, they can, they can enforce federal laws, immigration laws, without a judge getting involved and screwing with them three minutes later. And we were wondering, with these broad, capricious, arbitrary rules that are not passed, they didn't pass any legislature, they're just concocted by mayors Governors, county executives, county supervisors, even sheriffs at their capricious whims. Where are the judges? Where's this great juggernaut of judicial supremacy? Well, we finally found it. We finally found a right, a religious right that they will protect. And that is the religious sacrament of offering up your baby to the gods of Malok. Folks, we're going to have a special guest today, a constitutional lawyer, to discuss the legalities and the Constitution that no one even wants to mention. But I want to say this. On August 1st, 1776, just weeks after signing the Declaration of Independence, which they figured would be their death warrant to the king, they knew they were preparing for war, Sam Adams spoke before a large audience at the State House in Philadelphia beseeching them to fight for their independence. During the speech, Adams singled out religious liberty 
as the consummate freedom of all the fundamental rights they'd be fighting for in that upcoming revolution. He warned the public that, quote, our contest is not only whether we ourselves shall be free, but whether there shall be left to mankind an asylum on earth for civil and, or, or religious liberty. It is not hyperbole to suggest that that is literally where we sit right now. As you watch other nations start having, you know, the military police people and all sorts of things, just remember, two, less than two and a half weeks into this, these governors and mayors who can now rule with the divine right of king, they're just getting warmed up. Meaning, even if you're, you're okay with where we are, but just remember, if you look at the velocity, every day we have these press conferences. I'm making another announcement. Well, what about in 72 hours from now? What about in a week from now? What about in two weeks from now? Because again, the deaths will continue. They will continue to a certain extent, no matter what you do. That's what the evidence has demonstrated so far with this virus. Where are we? Why do we remain so silent? A friend of mine sent this to me, and now I see it in the christiannews.net. Four pastors arrested at North Carolina abortion facility amid governor's stay-at-home order. Second arrest since Saturday. This is in Greensboro. Four pastors in North Carolina, were arrested Monday morning, and a fifth was issued a citation as they were praying, distanced apart from each other at a restaurant parking lot adjacent to an abortion facility. Two leaders of Love Life, Charlotte and an attorney, were also arrested. We came here to the parking lot as individuals to pray for the most vulnerable among us at the abortion center here in Greensboro. Love Life Charlotte Executive Director Justin Reeder explained in a Facebook Live video. He said that five of the men walked over to the facility as a mobile ultrasound unit was parked alongside the street offering free help and hope to the women entering and um again they were not breaking any protocol i don't think there were 10 of them they were separated by six you know six feet distance but at a time when they are shutting down endless services endless medical services this is how arbitrary and capricious it is My father had a chipped off bone in the lumbar spine that was pressing against the nerve, such pain that Oxycontin didn't didn't help. And he couldn't find a doctor to perform the surgery. My brother-in-law, who's a partner in a a, a CPA firm, had a former client who was a surgeon and he wound up getting, you know, connecting him with with that guy and he, he did it. But even then, the Harbor Hospital here the medical director had to sign off that it was essential. And they were sitting there in the hospital with no patients, not coronavirus, not anything else. But judges won't protect those rights. But they're saying abortion. I mean. And then pastors who just want to use their freedom of speech. Freedom of assembly has been banned completely. But they're banning even things that don't engender large crowds that there would be some sort of rational basis to to bar it during a pandemic even individuals even businesses where are we here what's happening why do we sleep awaken from your slumber we need to call our county executives councilmen state legislatures demand action demand that if you're gonna conveniently shred every single clause of the bill of rights 
like it's never been done in our nation's history without hyperbole, without exaggeration. And then at the same time, conveniently ban any political protest because, oh, you're spreading germs. They have an obligation to hold virtual town halls and answer questions from the people. That the evidence, the data driving this, the exit strategy, how they arrive at these decisions, this subhuman schmuck of a judge, Lee Yeekal of the Western District of Texas, ruled on Monday, quote, regarding a woman's right to a pre-fetal viability abortion, the Supreme Court has spoken clearly. There can be no outright ban on such a procedure, but there could be an outright ban on every other medical procedure. There could be an outright ban on opening your business, even if you don't have crowds and you're following the CDC guidelines. There could be an outright ban on movement and travel between states, outright ban on all assembly and religious services. Simultaneously, a piece of garbage judge in Ohio did the same thing with the governor's order there, saying that. Well, if we're going to close non-essential services, we're going to close abortion clinics. U.S. District Judge Michael Barrett said, quote, a substantial obstacle in the that, that a governor cannot create a substantial obstacle in the path of patients seeking pre-viability abortions, thus creating an undue burden on abortion access. Think about that, an undue burden. We have an undue burden on every industry, every job, every business, every medical service. Every movement in your car and, and, and walking in some places now. And again, they're just getting started. Are you going to tell me there's science behind this? Dr. Falky, whatever his name is, uh, you know, that, 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 that guy who's now the president of the United States, because Trump clearly is not president. I mean, that was made very clear. It's just an empty suit. I'm sorry. I know I'm going to, you know, turn some of you off, but I mean, it's pathetic. At some point, you know, who elected Falky and Burke and whatever these people are this is an utter disgrace are there no limitations whatsoever on the power of a dinky county official i mean we've been told for decades that when a county government wants to merely open their you, you want to talk about north carolina i forget which county this was a couple years ago we wrote about it at conservative review a county government wanted to merely open up their meeting, their council meeting with a prayer. The federal court, Fourth Circuit, said you can't do that. Oh, the states have no power. But when the states want to close every service or even a public prayer, even following the CDC guidelines, somehow they can do that without any involvement of the federal courts. The only involvement is the great sacrament to Malok abortion truly truly dark times so folks before i blow a gasket here which i really will today i i badly need a guest on because i just i can't handle it for my blood pressure but again i do want to raise your blood pressure because you guys need to rise up we're gonna have a very special special guest on today's show i just want to preface this guest by saying page 32 in my book stolen sovereignty I talk about Calvin Coolidge's definition of an unalienable rights and how he talked about that if all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with an inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. 
no advance, no progress can be made beyond those propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. And what I noted in my book is that what Coolidge was saying is that unlike the shallow-minded, bleeding-heartedness of the political class and the legal elites, the spectrum of liberty is not an infinite straight line. It's a bell curve. You have to get it just right and freeze it at the peak. That peak was established by the Declaration of Independence, ratified by the Constitution despite the gaping hole of slavery, and it was repaired by the 14th Amendment, as understood properly, in 1868. Any attempt to, quote, expand rights and liberty runs off the cliff of Liberty Mountain toward the backside of Tyranny Slope. Granting super rights to protected classes necessarily leads to the infringement of basic rights of, other, of every other citizen. As John Quincy Adams once said, this is a land not of privileges, but of equal rights. Privileges are granted by European sovereigns to particular classes of individuals for purposes of general policy, but the general impression here is that privileges granted to one denomination of people can very seldom be discriminated from erosions of the rights of others. As we live in this unfathomable time, we have the worst mix of tyranny and anarchy. So on the one hand, you know, you would think that if we're becoming like Singapore, where it's just like, hey, full authoritarian rule, government feels this is what's good for public safety, you will obey, you will listen. Well, we sure as hell aren't going to have crime, illegal aliens, you know, these same cities that are now a dinky county supervisor could say the Declaration of Rights doesn't, of Independence doesn't exist. You can't have any business, any church, any anything, even if it doesn't engender large crowds. Well, certainly they'll clamp down on illegal aliens. Nope. Nope. Actually, largely the same cities doing that are the sanctuary cities. Suddenly they can do what they want when it comes to that. The courts, there's no right to have a business, church services, even most medical procedures that really border very critical and, and you know, knee replacements, hip replacements. But abortion, that's sacred. Release of criminals that have been duly convicted with endless due process, sacred. And illegal aliens are sacred. As we noted yesterday from the Montana Supreme Court, at the same time, any dinky mayor, county supervisor, and sheriff could suspend the First, Second Amendment everything around, they can't simply enforce federal immigration law and hold criminal aliens at the BS device for 48 hours so they can be picked up on immigration charges and repatriated. That's what happens when you don't, when you make up BS rights, you don't secure the real rights. That's how it works. That's why me, Daniel Horowitz, Mr. Fascist, authoritarian, because I'm a law and order guy on crime and illegal immigration. Why am I the last man standing when it comes to unalienable rights? Where's the Cato Institute? Where are they? Where, where's this libertarian juggernaut in the conservative legal profession? I'd love to know. With us today is Robert Barnes. He's a constitutional lawyer representing high-profile clients, He's actually represented Ralph Nader, Wesley Snipes, Jill Stein, Alex Jones, all sorts of people. Um, he has a Twitter account I want you guys to follow 
Barnes underscore law says B-A-R-N-E-S underscore law, where he's really going through this from the legal perspective, but also has great insight and information and data on what is the coronavirus and does the strat does does it warrant the strategy of what we're doing, or is this even counterintuitive? With no further ado, it's an honor to welcome Robert to our show. Hey Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, obviously you heard my opening monologue there. What am I missing? I, I have to pinch myself to think maybe this is an April Fool's joke. Is, does nobody care about any aspect of the Bill of Rights? Well, I mean, it's really terrifying in that what we've done is quarantine the Constitution under the guise of a public quarantine that does not meet either the medical or constitutional definition of a legitimate quarantine. A quarantine is isolating the sick or isolating people they have reason to believe are or will be sick from the general public. So typically it happens when people are on a ship and they come in, like the cruise ship cases. In those instances, until they can figure out who is sick, they're allowed to quarantine the, the sick or potentially sick from everyone else. What they have never done is use it as a pretext for mass house arrest. And indeed, the terms and conditions under which two-thirds to now 75 to 80 percent of Americans find themselves under house arrest are harsher than any criminal would face. A criminal would at least be able to go to their job, would be able to go to their church, would be able to go to a political event, even while under house arrest. Americans today are not. Mm. And this is happening at the same time while uh, criminals are being released under the streets and people are being denied the ability to purchase guns in their own defense. So it is a true dystopian vision where the the ACLU and the other legal organizations are only filing suit either for inmates or abortion clinics. They're doing nothing for churches. They're doing nothing for uh, individuals. They're doing nothing for people who've lost jobs, businesses, and property without either due process or just compensation under the Fifth Amendment. They're not doing anything for people whose privacy is being invaded routinely and regularly under the Fourth Amendment. As the mayor of L.A. admitted, he was tracking people through their phones uh, to see who they were associating and affiliating with. We know actually have pastors being arrested for conducting a church service in a manner that was safer than the national press conference every day is handled. And in (laughs) fact, the police plan to raid his church to achieve the arrest initially until they decided that might look bad politically. So we live in unprecedented times. This has never happened in American legal history ever. This is we have suspended our constitutional liberties for the first time in the history of the American Republic. And that is what makes it a very perilous time in America's for not only now, but for America's future. Wow. Robert, I mean, that that was very well said. And I think that's a message everyone needs to hear. And they really need to flood their state legislators, their county officials um, with with demands. We need a voice. We need transparency. So I was going through some of the case law. And, you know, obviously it's rooted in the dicta of Gibbons v. Ogden, the, the one of the most famous cases out of 1824, that certainly they could propose any reasonable regulations um, to protect the public health and public safety. Um, obviously, you have uh, mandatory vaccinations was affirmed by the Supreme Court in 1905 and Jacobson v. Massachusetts. But what I was struck by looking through most of the cases and this was really borne out in a Louisiana Louisiana case in 1902, which was was which was very revolutionary at the time. It would it um you know achieved a majority a ruling above the vigorous dissent of Justice Harlan. 
that they were always quarantining. So in the case of Louisiana, they were barring mainly immigrants, by the way, foreign nationals who don't have an affirmative right to to be here or come here from landing in certain areas that were already that were affected. Ironically, it was actually um, typically we, we, we would quarantine sick people and you know say you you're separated from the population in some way in this case it actually did apply to healthy people but it was saying healthy people cannot land from international waters into areas already affected i think the case there was yellow fever um other times it was smallpox and what's amazing is you look at how they parse words and everything and I had trouble really finding a way to relate to our current situation because what I found was that the language of all the rulings were literally singular. They apply to individuals. And I was thinking you can't even find a case law for something of declaring nuclear warfare, nuclear winter on the economy and shutting down every single business. The whole point was, hey, I don't want you to go to a business. You can't go out. So that's what I, I feel is the central point nobody is making. What else have you seen from case law that you could share with us? So there's sort of parallel traditions. From a legal and principled and philosophical basis, there is no grounds to do what's happening now. I mean, all of the founding fathers, the community that helped pass the Constitution, including my family in Rhode Island back in the day, uh, who opposed it until a Bill of Rights was added, all of them were intimately familiar with plagues and viruses in ways uh, much more so than we are today. And yet, they didn't carve out any exception for that in the Constitution. So the idea that they thought there could be a public health exception to the First Amendment, a national emergency exception to the Second Amendment, uh, that there could be a police power that could override the Constitution is simply not grounded at all in the history of the Constitution. And any originalist would have to reject it as being a ground for it. And that's why Judge Yackel yesterday, even though he was doing it on behalf of Planned Parenthood, I think given his politics, he means it more broadly. He said there was no national emergency exception to the Constitution of the United States. And the mm. and that is the case. And so the that's what the case law should say. Now, the flip side is this. In times of war, in times of public health crises or perceived public health crises, our courts have a long, notorious, ugly history of turning a blind eye to the Constitution. Sure. That's why, like, the really the most, and I've told people the most analogous example to this is Korematsu. Korematsu. When we, <laughs> that, that's when we uh, interned and detained a bunch of people on the grounds that maybe somebody amongst them is a threat. And that's what's happening here, because there's a recognition that, you know, 1% of the people are going to be a threat, even if they have the disease and you don't know it. So here we're saying all of you Americans might get it at some point, maybe 1% of you, and you pose a potential threat to the rest of us. So we're going to lock you all up. That's what happened in the Japanese detainment cases. And that's when we locked up a bunch of citizens here, put them under a form of house arrest, ended up physically moving most of them to camps, physical camps. Others were left under house arrest, shutting down their businesses in many cases, just like this, denying them the chances of affiliating and associating for political or religious purposes or the purchase of, of guns. So that is the most precisely analogous circumstance. And it's one of the reasons why I'm going to start bringing suits across the country 
uh, mm-hmm. for people against these governors and mayors and other town managers and county officials doing this sort of lawless power grab that we've never witnessed before. And I want to force courts to choose, do they want to go down the Korematsu path? One of the most infamous decisions that has led to, to the most damage to the perception of the integrity of the judiciary in the history of American law. Or do they want to recognize that church, that the that uh, all of our constitutional liberties are essential services? The every uh, stay home order should have included as an exception any exercise of constitutional rights as an essential activity. Nothing is more essential to the constitutional republic of this country than the exercise of constitutional rights. Exactly, and I, and I think your Korematsu analogy is really apropos because. You can't even compare this to World War II in general, because in general, aside from the Japanese Americans, we didn't do this. We had the meatless Mondays, wheatless Tuesdays. There were a lot of regulations, a lot of restrictions, a lot of mandates. But I mean, the the indefinite home confinement without any transparency. And, And again, there we understood what was at stake. It was prima facie clear what we were up against. This is a so called faceless enemy that is continuously a moving target. They don't have to show any benchmarks, no time um, limitations, no uh, evidence-based policymaking. Also, another hallmark of a lot of the case law is they were carefully written statutes. These are just randomly drawn up memos by executives, whether state or county, at their whim, they arbitrarily decide, you know, politically what they want to uh, keep open and what they don't. And what I thought was was really astounding is is a simple um, proposition in in case law that we've always recognized, uh, certainly the landmark Shelton v. Tucker case in 1960, that we all understand that there are extraordinary circumstances where government could always clamp down on a constitutional right. I mean, heck, you know, um, uh, incarceration is doing just that. But there's there's a ton of due process uh, multiplied by. 200 years of case law that frankly is beyond the constitution. But, um, but what they always say is that you have to achieve that goal. Um, you, you, uh, basically when you're stifling fundamental personal liberties, it has to be achieved through the most narrow means. And what I don't understand is they're now holding at the point of shutting down businesses that clearly don't engender large gatherings, which are many of them. They're now, in many cases, I believe, I don't know in my state of Maryland yet, but in Hawaii, if you're caught walking or driving just as one individual, um, not to mention the fact that you know mass transit has been shut down in most states, but if you're one individual in a car, which is the most sanitary thing, you could be pulled over and asked, where are you going? And one other thing, Robert, before you respond, we're just getting warmed up here. I mean, at a minimum, this is another 30 days. Uh, some governors are declaring this till June 10th. And you look at what they're doing in countries that, to begin with, don't have democracy. I'm hearing from a friend who has relatives in Panama that they have women are allowed to go out Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Men are allowed to go out uh, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. And Sunday, nobody is allowed to go out. They are monitoring them with with a certain um, IDs and everything. My concern is even if you are okay with where we are now, doesn't someone have to draw a line in the sand? I mean, absolutely, it has to be done. 
the someone has to at least contest it and challenge it, in both in terms of civil disobedience and in terms of filing suits. Because if not, uh, this sets a perilous precedent. Because as I noted, this has never happened before in American legal history, where an entire city has been put under mass arrest, mass house arrest. Never happened. We've never suspended constitutional liberties or even pretended we could for the entire city, county, or state in our history. So we've never before they said we're going to shut down all gun shops. Never before they said we're going to disallow all church services. Never before they said we're going to disallow all political rallies. To give you a classic example, uh, right now there are people trying to to circulate petitions to get on the ballot as either a candidate or to get a cause or issue a referendum or recall on the ballot like they want to do in Nevada to the governor because of his overreaching. And they can't because that's now prohibited. They can't go to order for petitioning because they did not exempt the exercise of constitutional liberties as essential activities. These people can be put in jail or prison if they simply do what their constitution uh, allows them to do and protects them from doing. And that's why the, the real peril is not this pandemic. It's the panic in response to the pandemic that is shutting down, suspending constitutional liberties, and that is also damaging and harming the economy. And to give a real-world example, in 1918 in the Spanish flu, which we dealt with in three successive years because of how it does uh, spread and how it varied, in all of those places and cases, in all of the cities across the country, nobody did this. They, what they did is they, uh, they shut down public gatherings of of large crowds where you would have to get a a permission or a a petition to appear, like concerts, like parades. But that was it. All of your constitutional liberties were protected. They shut down schools for a period of time because young people were a particular at-risk category for the Spanish flu, unlike the opposite of, yeah. None of them did what we're doing now. And what's interesting is how much, like the National Geographic went through the whole thing about how just limited measures sufficed. They did a detailed study. It was published by National Geographic. And what it showed was that all of this was sufficient, that all you needed was limit public gatherings, educate people on social distancing and taking protective measurements, uh, have some regulation of when people go to business so you don't get too big of crowds. Right now we have the counter because we're getting massive crowds at grocery stores all the time by what we're doing. uh, And so Mm -hmm. that was it. They didn't shut down any businesses. They didn't do any mass house arrests. They didn't suspend churches. They didn't suspend public rallies. They didn't suspend uh, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, or the Fourth Amendment. And they they more than flattened the curve in all of those cities. So why in the world are we doing something that has never been done before, that has not even been shown to be medically successful? In fact, if anything, because this virus spreads in close, confined quarters with those having continuous contact with one another, in all likelihood, as even Cuomo admitted a week or two ago, this kind of mass house arrest, misdefinition and misappropriation of the word quarantine may in fact expand and spread the disease, not limit it. That see, that's a really interesting point where you just made because the one thing I know I'm going to get, and I already preempted it in the in the column I just sent out, is that no, Daniel, you don't understand. This is different than everything that happened in our history because you see, with modern the advent of modern um, transportation and commingling, and also this virus is just super special. It could do anything. You know, anything conveniently that will engender the policy outcome they want. So therefore, look, Daniel, everyone really is a threat. Everyone is easily a threat to get it. So we have to quarantine, so to speak, every single person. 
But as you mentioned, the problem with that is it's circular logic. If so, then your entire strategy of quarantine is out the window. Millions likely have already had it either in what they thought was the flu in January and February and March, um, but was really this or they were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms. Um, so that horse already left the barn. So you're quarantining. People already have it. Like, again, I was struck by reading the history and the and the and the case law is that we had a defined outbreak. OK, this area, they're carrying yellow fever, TB. Um, smallpox let's confine it make sure it doesn't spread but here it's exactly i mean it's everywhere it's in every county it's everyone you know knows someone who has been exposed even if they haven't tested for it um it, it, the same way it's not constitutional it's not a good strategy so what else are you seeing just in terms of the um in terms of the actual science behind this virus that that bear i i would say that 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 give us some sort of guidance in terms of what we should do policy wise so the key within the constitutional law is that when you're going to infringe on any core constitutional liberty like the right to associate with whom you choose for political purposes the right to attend church services the right to purchase a gun the right to privacy against state intervention the right to your property or business or your occupation without it being deprived without due process of law or just compensation is that in all of those instances the government has to show that there's a compelling public interest and that their particular means of action of infringing on those liberties is narrowly tailored to that compelling public interest. So here the claim to compelling public interest isn't people avoiding people getting sick. It's simply hospitalization, severe illness, and death. That's the purported public health interest. The remedies they have chosen are not anywhere near the definition of a narrowly tailored remedy. And that's why I see different people talking about this to say, well, why is a lawyer talking about it rather than an epidemiologist or an economist? It's because we are the ones who do this analysis every day for constitutional law in this country, that there has to be a narrowly tailored remedy. We have to evaluate the science. We have to value, uh, evaluate the economics to make the assessment about, is this a narrowly tailored remedy to a compelling public interest? Here, first of all, there's no science that supports mass public house arrest as a means of effectively containing a virus. None. Zilch. The only data out there is that, in fact, what is more than sufficient is what we did, is what every city did in the 1918 Spanish flu here in the United States, which is just limit mass gatherings, uh, limit co close confined uh, interaction between large groups of people, and publicly educate and give advisory guidance to the broader populace as to how to protect themselves, whether that's masks, whether that's social distancing, however it is. That's it. Nothing further. Not depriving anyone of a single constitutional liberty. The second component is when you dig into the data, you find that this pandemic is far more panic than play. And the evidence of that is from the data itself. First of all, every virus in the history of modern medicine has not gone that the worst was the Spanish flu, and even it only reinfected 10% of a population over a compressed time frame. We have these models claiming they're going to infect 70% over a shorter time frame. That's literally never happened in the history of viruses in the modern era. Second, they're forecasting and they're saying that the asymptomatic, a lot of people who get a virus, never have a symptom for the virus. In fact, all of us are carrying around viruses. As a doctor in Germany explained, one of the things the media was lying about was equating infection 
with disease that affects it as an equal disease. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. two-thirds of the world is disease because they're all carrying different viruses around. Just many of them have no impact on their bodies or their or medical system. Historically, people that are asymptomatic, only less than 1% will be able to ever communicate or spread the disease to anyone else. Yet here, the models were predicting that 50% would. So they were predicting a 50 times ratio of any virus in the history of modern medicine. So they have these two extraordinary assumptions about how it's going to infect everybody in a tight time frame. And secondly, that the asymptomatic can spread it as well. And so those two assumptions have no basis in the data. No basis in history. As a lawyer, I cross-examine experts all the time, and as I told people, once you're a lawyer and you do enough of these trials, your opinions and estimations of experts will shrink dramatically. One, you can buy almost <laughs> anyone you want, and two, you can once you get into the underlying information and data, when they're stretching it, you can take them apart. Because sadly, as Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel and others have documented, there's been a cultural corrosive corruption of our academic and intellectual institutions yep. such that these yep. people are completely unaccustomed to being second-guessed, questioned, or challenged. Exactly, I would, exactly. I would love it if the president would allow me to go to maybe in the, in the public, uh, uh, go to the press conference room and get to cross-examine Fauci just for a few minutes. Uh, the or any of these folks. So do they agree to it? Fauci himself, by the way, has published a report in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine, which refutes what he said yesterday on TV. He says that actually maybe the mortality rate on this thing is basically flu-like. Um, and that's what he reports. What he wrote in the uh, thing, in the report that was that was published in the uh, in the New York in the New England uh, one of the yeah. most prestigious medical journals in the country. Yeah, so he, the himself, bottom line he is, himself published it. No, I'm saying he himself yes. published it. That was, yes, yeah, right? he's one of the four authors. He's one of the. He himself is one of the published authors. What happened is he put this together before this became a big political issue, and so that's why it was already in the publishing chain before he could withdraw it, of course. And so it refutes what he's saying right now on TV to satiate the media. The other problem with Trump listening to these people, and I get why he's under massive pressure to do so, but there's, does anyone doubt that any one of those people, when they went into the ballot box, uh, ballot booth of 2016, put Hillary Clinton as their candidate? <laughs> so the, none of these people have Trump's interests behind them. Well, this is a broader problem on, on, on every policy. I mean, you, you're, you're absolutely right about that, but we're seeing that with every agency, every policy, these were career officials that are suddenly his people. And you made a very powerful point and, you know, this is our movement of citizen sanctuaries, citizen self-government. I'm sick of hearing about these experts. There's a reason why our founders vested the power of commander in chief in a civilian leader, not a military leader. Well, wouldn't they know best about military strategy? It, and it's a similar thing here. Um, this outsourcing of our constitution to the medical experts. I mean, Let me just tell you something, Robert. You know nobody followed the border crisis closer than me. That's my main career is in the border and immigration law. And what I was floored about is when we saw a prima facie health threat. According to Border Patrol, in the peak six months of the crisis last year, 21,000 aliens from God knows how many dozens of countries, not just Central America, were taken to hospitals, and this is not Columbia Presbyterian in New York City. We're talking about Del Rio and Yuma, places like that. 250,000 agent men hours spent in the hospitals, dealing with all sorts of very communicable diseases. Um, sheriffs and local officials would tell me that 
the citizens would often have to wait in line behind them. They never declared an outbreak. The CDC said it's not a problem. They actually put out memos saying how Central Americans have a extraordinarily high rate of vaccination. It just on the face of it, BS. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows it. I called them out on the opioid crisis. They lied. They they conflated the prescription deaths or the um, illicit drug deaths with prescription deaths when in fact prescriptions had already gone down several years before the crisis began 2014-2015 and certainly the prescription deaths went down it was all due to illicit drugs they had they were forced to recant it um i wrote an article on that um obviously these are the same people who don't believe in x and y chromosomes a man is a woman a woman's a man and what that tells us is you know this is not about science. This is about religion. And they are very religious. It is their religious beliefs. Um, what, I, what I find so um, just revealing here, and I'm, I want to get your observation on this as well, is that even if you felt it was, it's, it's a necessary evil, you would treat it like a necessary evil there would be a degree of humility you know it's with a heavy heart we feel we have to close this we're going to update it every three days we're going to do everything we can no they, they are gleeful they revel in it oh you better listen to this no timeline no, i mean the governor of my state larry hogan no timeline we're shutting this down i mean so that demonstrates to me it's not even a necessary evil in their mind every pre-existing policy outcome they wanted even when they conflict with each other like confine americans but disperse criminals who are already in the ultimate quarantine um they're enacting so i mean wouldn't you expect to see a little bit more humility if this was just a necessary evil oh no doubt about it it's clearly a pretext for a power grab that we have never seen in our history, and that clearly the founding families and founding fathers had no idea could ever occur and did not intend or permit it to occur. And it goes further than that is the degree to which once you once I started seeing the power grab, once I started seeing what they were trying to do to the economy, restructure it, crush it for ordinary people, rewrite the rules on Wall Street, bail out a bunch of banks that are in various forms of bubbles, try to protect the pension funds from sinking because they've been overinvested in different ways over the years, um, all because we have artificially low uh, interest rates due to the Fed's manipulation of quantitative easing and the monetary Which supply. we're doing even more now. Oh, by, by a huge number. I mean, people don't realize, like, one of the early signs that this was going to be hugely dramatic that what they're intending to do is the Fed is committed to going from $4 trillion on their balance sheet to as much as $16 trillion on their balance sheet, and, and then came out and said, we'll print as much money as we need to bail out whomever we need. And while they, and they can do so under the fig leaf that, hey, this is because of the pandemic. So you have two things going on. You have the politicians saying, oh, the pandemic requires that I be a petty tyrant now. Uh, it requires I become your new king. And the, the Fed and people on Wall Street saying, oh, you know, the, the pandemic is the reason why we're moving massive amounts of money to favor privileged and protected people in ways that are four times larger than anything we even contemplated doing during the financial crisis of 2008 or 2009. And clearly, they're just using this as a guise to do what they want to do, restructure the economy and bail out their protected allies and, and on the economic side and on the political side, seize power to a degree that they never could have even thought about doing. When you have the mayor of L.A. saying, I'm not only going to shut down gun shops, 
I'm going to send sheriffs door to door to lock people up. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to shut down their electricity, their heating, their ability to get water, all the rest. You get a sense of how dictatorial and totalitarian this is. The way I've described it is we have a real-world trade-off right now. We can be like Cuba. Cuba has this degree of control, this degree of surveillance, this degree of being able to shut down the economy, this degree of being able to shut down where people live. People really live under house arrest every day in Cuba in some manner. And Cuba, too, has achieved a higher life expectancy. So I've always told people, if ask any American, here's your choice, 77 good years in America or 78 miserable years in Cuba. Who's going to pick? We're being asked to pick the 78-year miserable years in Cuba. The uh, I know plenty of elderly people that have various illnesses that are severely at risk here. Not one of them was, went through World War II or any of that so that they could experience the thing that they fought against ever yes. happening in this country. Uh, so the yes. idea that, oh, this is protects grandma. No, this is an insult to grandpa. This is an insult to grandpa. This is taking away from them what they spent their lives trying to make sure never would happen here. And the, and, and the other evidence that this is all pretextual, once this became a, a tool of the power grab, it became a means for the press to drive out Trump, became a means for the Fed to bail out their protected allies, then that their incentive and motivation to lie their rears off about what was really happening with the pandemic went sky high. The, at that point, they had every motivation, every incentive to deceive yeah. the public at large, and they clearly have. I mean, to give just one example, as soon as they started building, doing the drum for testing, I knew that that was completely media hysteria and hype. Because every year, what they didn't tell any, tell the broader public, is that 97% of the people who get the flu never test for it. So if you look at yeah. the flu test, confirmed test rate, 10% of the people who get the test for the flu die from the flu. That's three or four times higher what they were even estimating at the beginning in the worst case scenarios for this virus. Uh, and what they do is they use the estimated death standard for the flu to compare it to the confirmed test standard for the virus to lead people to think that the virus was 34 times more dangerous than the flu by using a deliberately misleading standard. And by screaming for testing, they knew they could panic the public into being, oh, look at those test numbers go up. This is terrible. Or if we were doing one for the flu right now, that number would be three, five times higher. So the, uh, that's, it was purely designed to create panic. Purely in the designed to see what kind of dystopian power grab the media could grab in trying to defeat Trump, the, the Fed and the Wall Street crowd could do to bail themselves out of problems that were independent and separate from the pandemic, and that the politicians at the local, county, and state level could figure out how much can I really be a king and how much can I get away with it. And that's what scares me, the pretext. Um, you put out a tweet a few days ago, and I can't remember what it was, but I sent to Steve Dace and it inspired an observation. And basically the point you were making is that rather than allowing this drip drip, let's call them out preemptively immediately. What you are essentially saying with this pseudoscience that commensurate with every lockup, the numbers go down and commensurate with opening up society you spread the disease, you are essentially saying you are going to need nuclear warfare on our economy and liberty until there's a vaccine. That's the point you made. And that's when my colleague Steve Dace, when I told him about that, that's when he observed this is exactly like Afghanistan. This is our Afghanistan. So there's no transparency, no metrics, no matter the cost, no matter the painful sacrifice, they could always say, and we're seeing that now, well, look, 
it would be worse. It would be worse if we wouldn't be do doing that. You can imagine. And it's never verifiable. You never have a definition of what victory looks like. We all know that there will always be cases coming up. Now, every single, not just death, but contracting of, of a case is now national news. So, like, they're just breaking. CNN uh, anchor Chris Cuomo has tested positive for COVID-19. So, so it's like it's like the equivalent of tested positive for Ebola or something like that. And that is always going to drive it. And my concern is if you look at the weekly numbers, just the weekly fatality numbers for pneumonia during the peak pneumonia and flu season, three to four or five months, you get anywhere, depending on the year, from three to five thousand fatalities weekly from pneumonia. All it takes is for the media to start really highlighting that. And now that that genie is out of the bottle, that we have a permanent modus operandi, that this is what we do. This, how many shutdowns are we going to do? The governors are going to say, what do we do now? Let's start. Which gatherings, which businesses do we shut? And I don't, how do we put that genie back in the bottle? Well, that's a huge danger here that this is endless, this is ceaseless, and this is will be repeated in the future. Because here they've managed to do this based entirely on media hype. 98% of Americans know nobody who has a severe illness from coronavirus. And yet they're willing to accept these incredible suspension of their constitutional liberties and deprivation of their basic economic opportunities. Why? Because the media has told them to be scared. The media has created this sort of dynamic over the uh, of with visuals, with charts, with scary images, with uh, people in lab coats. Tell, it goes back to that old, old experiment where somebody in a lab coat comes in, tells the guy, hey, shock that person over there, and they just keep shocking them and shocking them and shocking them just because a person in a lab coat told them that. We have now a mass public experiment of that taking place, where people are going along with things without even them witnessing personally any of this evidence for this purported harm. So they figured out that all they've got to do is claim there's a scary virus out there, and that will be enough to get people to have mass forfeiture of civil liberties, mass suspension of basic economic uh, opportunities. And at the, so it's going to scare – it's a terrifying precedent that they're setting, and they're setting in such a way here that where they can compete, uh, consistently do this just on this pretext over and over and over again and have no reason to do otherwise. Things like, for example – creating a paranoia and hysteria around testing when the flu-like diseases have lots of people who are asymptomatic who test. It means nothing whatsoever. has no medical bearing or significance. It wasn't going to increase the number of deaths or increase the number of severe illnesses. Um, but in the same vein, they've managed to do that by just, as you note, looking at something like influenza uh, and showing what – if you go to a hospital on the south side of Chicago on almost any weekend, you'll see a war zone. During most flu seasons, there are hospitals across the country, whichever area gets hit disproportionately with the flu, where the press itself has described the hospitals looking like a war room. So this is not just the – our hospitals operate as close to capacity as possible for a range of economic reasons. So anything can push them over. And you can go to any place in the country on any given weekend and find some hospital, particularly in lower-income communities, which is what's happening in New York, where they use the hospitals as their primary care provider to show overcapacity. 
This isn't anything new at all. I guess they're trying to make it sound new, make it sound novel. They're taking things that happen every day in America, and because they don't cover it every day in America, making it sound and look scary. I mean, you can always you can go to any hospital and find people with you know unusual things over their heads because of the, with the nature of any kind of influenza or respiratory disease. Different respiratory disease kills people all across the country every day. Uh, but now they're making and associating it with the virus to scare people. That's creating a walking dead environment that has conditioned the masses to associate the, this horrible trauma with something that it's not really associated with. That's why you have Italy, Spain, New York City reporting that if somebody dies of a heart attack and they also happen to have coronavirus, they're calling that a coronavirus death. If somebody has a pre-existing severe respiratory disease, and, they, and that's what they die up there was saying that maybe it was coronavirus just because they happened to have coronavirus. A German doctor pointed out very early on that this was likely to happen. And his mm. point was, in Germany, they don't do that. In Germany, they separate cause and effect for purposes of the death certificate. The reality is what we're doing is taking extraordinary risks with our core constitutional liberties and our autonomy to change what people died of on their death certificate. That's all we're really doing. So you look at New York, how many people have died that did not have other deathly, deadly diseases in their body already? 14 people. Now, that doesn't sound like a scary number. You're not, the media's not going to be able to terrify the country off the biggest hotspot, only having, having less than 5% of their daily death rate. That's why the relevant statistic in all of this, and again, one of the keys the press has done is remove context from people to be able to evaluate mm. the meaning of something. And in this mm. time, and what they've done is they removed the, the relevant context is what's the mortality rate? How many excess deaths do we have? That's the medical term in the medical literature, excess fatality rate. How many people died who would not have otherwise died because of the incidence of some virus or disease? And that number is probably tiny. We know right now in the U.S. fewer people are dying than normally die in America. So we're shutting down our economy and suspending our civil liberties for something that hasn't even increased the death rate in the United States. Wow. I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack that I need to have you back on again. Um, this is just very, I guess, mellifluous sounding to our audience here because uh, they don't hear a modicum of common sense from other media, including so-called conservative media and certainly the political class. I just want to close with this. So obviously I'm working very hard to try to spawn action on a state and county political level. You talked about, you know, spawning lawsuits. Now, obviously, you know, my view in general on judicial supremacism um, of the of the opinion in, in general that, you know, we've overused it too much in most cases. I'm certainly of the view that public safety is a big deal. And I was never into these insane lawsuits where, you know, you would often have um where it just uh, Scalia, you know, Scalia used to talk about this a lot in uh, what's that case? Plano v. Brown, where they mandated in California the release of 46,000 felons. And Scalia famously said that, you know, it comes before us a case where it is so the outcome is so properly defined by tradition and common sense that its decision ought to shape the law rather than vice versa. And of course, he was a stickler for the law. He didn't mean you just don't follow the law. But he's the point. His point was, at some point, you don't act like Amelia Bedelia. And, you know, I've been saying that on crime. I've been saying that on the border. We're at breakneck speed. Courts are inventing um, novel, novel rights for criminals and rights for foreign nationals to come here, remain here against 130 years of uninterrupted uh, plenary power doctrine, case law. And 
you know, there, there's just like everyone looks at me like I'm a fascist. Um, and and I, I've said, look, I, I firmly believe there are times where there is a right for an executive to look at totality of circumstances and even sometimes in a vacuum um, infringe upon a right. Um, although in those cases, there was no right. But, you know, as, as Abraham Lincoln talked about all the time, um, Edward Bates, his attorney general, has a famous memo on the suspension of habeas corpus on how you cannot just um, expect the executive to stand by and watch the collapse of every aspect of the Constitution and the breakup of the country for a ha handful of, you know, habeas petitions. But I look at all those cases. And again, we never did this. I mean, Lincoln gets a bad rap for that. But how many people did that involve? I mean, this is what's so unbelievable. And yet somehow now suddenly, oh, no, no, Daniel, you're, this is not the time. This is a, this is unlimited power, a quarantine. We can't do anything. So what is your suggestion on the judicial front? What could people do to help you? What could they get involved in? What are you planning on doing? Uh, yeah, so people, if people have questions or any inquiries about it, they can uh, email me. Uh, they DM me on Twitter or email me at uh, BarnesLaw, uh, LLP, as in Peter, dot com, and, and help out. There's also a political organization I help start, Free America Law Center, uh, freeamericalawcenter.com. People can go to their answering questions and trying to coordinate all the suits. I think we need to bring the best legal action to the best jurisdictions across the country. So we're gonna, you know, we need to look at about 50 different potential suits, figure out the top 10, which ones have the best chances of getting a good outcome. And, and start filing suit because uh, and hope that the judiciary does not repeat the Korematsu decision. And that's the way I'm going to present it to them. I say I understand they're under great political pressure in the environment that we face, and that most judges have failed the test over American legal history. Some some did. I mean, there was the judge in San Francisco who recognized when they tried to shut down all of Chinatown in San Francisco under the guise of a public health quarantine yep. in ways that were clearly bogus. Uh, he he reversed in 1905. Which but, was but that's my concern, Robert. My concern is that you know you know this as a lawyer. The religion and the legal profession is discrimination, and I mean sometimes it's legitimate. But you know what I mean. It yes. they only go against like that. You're you're referencing a case in 1900, um, Juho v. What was it, Williamson, um, in in the Northern District of California. And where they, you know, that was one of the examples where they said, no, that quarantine is out of bounds. But my concern is they're going to say, look, no, I mean, we're not discriminating. This is everyone. <laughs> you know, this is this is everyone. We're all in the same boat. Yeah. In fact, there's Harvard law professors and other people trying to come up with excuses how this is a great chance for a collectivist power grab, but that only discriminatory things are the only things we have to worry about. It's OK <laughs> to do mass violation. There was a law professor at the University of Texas who said, hey, by the way, if you hear Congress or the president start talking about using the Insurrection Act, uh, that that's no problem. <laughs> what? I mean, these are things that things that people use to label. Oh, that's just an Alex Jones conspiracy theory. Well, who turned out more right, Alex Jones or the mainstream media, about what we're experiencing right now? So this is a dystopian vision of the world that we can only we got to do everything we can to resist it. Part of that is public information. Share you know share links, share contacts, share videos, share ideas that come from independent sources that are challenging this establishment narrative. Yes. Get the ideas out, get the discussion out, spread a virus of honest information against this pandemic of false information. But on top mm -hmm. of that, uh, for those people who want to do civil disobedience, I know a lot of people are saying Easter Sunday, 
they're going to go to church. They're, they're just going to do it regardless of what their local laws say. Um, and you know, what would ha- are they really going to do mass arrests on Easter Sunday? Uh, particularly if churches are doing like what the Tampa church did, which was have social distancing within the church so that there was minimal risk of exposure. Nobody had to come. It's just voluntary to come. Um, the, I think that's a possibility. People should think about massive civil disobedience on Easter Sunday in this country. And then I think we, and, and I am putting together the legal team to bring the lawsuits across the country that we've got to do. We've got to at least give the courts the opportunity to do the right thing. They may not, but we've got to fight it back with every tool and technique that we have. If the NAACP is to assume that the courts would stay closed in the 1940s, they would have never opened up the country by the 1960s. So we got to do what we got to do, and uh, that, that's how everybody can help participate and help make a difference. In the end, it's the masses you know, reaching out, doing, reaching out exactly. to Trump, spreading right information, politically participating, engaging in occasional civil disobedience. Uh, challenging the system through the legal court system. That, that's the only way in America we make a difference if we're going to keep our democracy and constitutional republic alive. Very well said, folks. You could follow him at Barnes underscore law on Twitter. Go check out the Free America Law Center. Um, again, what is your email? Uh, you, they can find me. They can email me directly. Go to the BarnesLawLLP.com, and we have a public uh, email site on there so that people can send emails in. And there's a group of people that are getting that information, gathering it to uh, uh, to help across the country. Folks, if you're an attorney and you'd like to help, um, make sure to email them at BarnesLawLLP.com. If you have any questions for him, you could email me, uh, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com, or you could email uh, Robert as well. Thanks so much for coming on and please, please stay in touch with us uh, and keep us updated day to day. All right. Absolutely. Will do. Thanks a lot. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Robert Barnes. Man, I mean, he is sharp as a whip, very articulate, very smart. Um, I mean, I say this all the time. God has a time and a place for everyone. And not all lawyers are bad. Sometimes you need that skill. And I think this is where we need it. And again, you know, my view, I'm not saying that I suddenly believe and want the courts to be the final say over a debate over something that affects the whole of the people. Ultimately, it's the totality of the system. The people need to rise up with public information, county officials, state legislatures, Congress, plus the executives all together. But yes, one avenue is the courts. And certainly when it's, you know, not a matter of saying I want the courts to give me something, but just get off my lawn. You can't arrest me for taking a stroll in a, in a national in a state park or something. If you're going to individually arrest me, I do have a right to petition a court for relief. I have said that all along. Um, ultimately, if they decide something, it's not the final say in my view. Um, but if they're right, we should argue on their behalf in that case. So that's where we are. I'll be trying to put out more articles, videos. Very busy week. Follow Harwood Citizen Sanctuary on Facebook. Let's keep this movement alive and grow it. Folks, it is time to rise up. Mm-hmm.